Hey guys, it's Anna. I'm coming to you live from the Drunk Gossip Studios here in New York City. And tonight is a very special night because for the very last segment, we're going to travel to Central Park. And you are going to meet Bill, the producer. Um, so that's going to be that's something to look forward to. We're doing a, kind of a recap of the Jesse Smollett story. Excuse me. We're doing kind of a recap of the Jesse Smollett story, and um, we're going to uh, give you all the latest breaking news on that story. So something to look forward to. For right now, though, there's more breaking news, uh, and this is breaking just as I'm recording this. R. Kelly has more sexual assault allegations against him. Two women said that they met him um, after a concert with LL Cool J, I believe, in the 90s. This is why I have to do this before I see Will, because he would yell at me for not having production notes in 96. And their stories basically match up. They They were seen by his entourage. They were invited back to the after party. Once they were in a room with with R. Kelly, Latrice Scaff and Rochelle Washington were asked to have a threesome. And uh, I believe Scaff said no. Uh, Washington said no, I don't do that. And went to the bathroom. And once Washington was gone, R. Kelly forced Scaff to suck his dick and then fucked her. Um, and this was after his entourage plied them with weed and alcohol. For his part, R. Kelly's attorneys is still denying any and all allegations. I'm sorry, this is just like the Cosby thing. Like, one or two, maybe... I would find it very hard, but when you have all of these girls coming forward, all these women, I'm sorry, coming forward and saying, you know, this is, this is what happened, and it's a very consistent story, there's something there. Where there's smoke, there's fire, and there's definitely fire here. Um, Scaff says of the situation with R. Kelly, it took a heavy toll on me, so I feel like I need to be here today to tell what happened to me because all of the other victims that were affected by it, too. You know, and the... People keep saying, well, you know, this was 22 years ago. Why did you wait so long? First of all, they were six fucking teen years old. I don't care... What people say, when you're 16, you don't know better. When when a celebrity touches you, when a celebrity does something like that to you, you don't, you don't understand what is going on. You know, you know you're having sex, but you, there's a really hard way that you, you don't necessarily know that it's wrong. And I'm not making excuses for them. I'm just saying it like it is. Like, oh, I wish I could remember um, which celebrity it was. 
Um, but there was... Uh, maybe it was Nicole Eggert in the Scott Bayo situation where she kept saying, you know, I didn't think it was... I didn't think it was wrong. I thought it was okay. You know, I thought we were in love. Yada, yada, yada. And eventually... One day she saw her daughter, and her daughter was going to go out with an older man or something. I forget the exact situation. And she just realized, this is not okay. And that's when she started talking about what happened with her and Scott Baio. And here's the thing. The two situations are similar, but they're very, very different. R. Kelly has flouted the law even with allegations against him. Um, If you read upon C-Dan, it's because he has friends in very high places, um, friends he supplies underage girls to who are more than willing to look the other way as long as that flow keeps coming in. Scott Baio didn't have these allegations until recently. And... You know, so it's not like he's flouted the law like people are saying. There were no allegations against him. You can say whatever you want about Scott Baio. He's a homophobe. He's racist. He's a uh, MAGA supporter. But he he never had accusations about inappropriate behavior with, with underage girls like R. Kelly has. So for those that are still supporting R. Kelly, I don't know why. What is it about this man that makes you think that he deserves to be believed? Even after all these girls, we saw, we saw him marry a 15-year-old Aaliyah. You know, so we know that underage girls is his type. Why do we believe him? Why should we believe him when he says he didn't have sex with underage girls knowingly? And you know, and just one more thing before I go. I know I was supposed to end it with, with that really powerful question, but I just want to bring up the sex tape. Now, let's play devil's advocate and say that the girl in the video is over the age of 18. 18 or over. There is still something very fucked up about him wanting her to say her 14-year-old pussy. So, I have to ask again, why should we believe him? I'm going to go and I'll be right back. And I'm back. So, I've kind of told this story before, but I'm going to tell it again because I think it's still relevant here. Um, A couple years ago, I was working as a um, consultant for a gift shop at a museum. And I ended up getting very ill. I was throwing up. And when I say I was throwing up, I mean I was... um, I couldn't hold anything down. This, that, and the other thing. And eventually they fired me. It led me to a very desperate situation. And and thank God it did. Because it completely changed my life. And, you know... I. I, I tell this story every time we talk about Wendy Williams because, uh, like, I really feel her, like, in a way. Um, Wendy Williams hasn't um, hosted her own talk show 
in a little bit more than two months, she finally announced today that she'll be officially returning March 14th. Which is great news. I'm sure her fans are very happy. Um, personally, I'm not a huge fan of hers. Although I will say, I did like... Um, I was at school one day, and I was in the cafeteria waiting for class. And they had Wendy on, so as I was eating my lunch, I watched some Wendy. And she was interviewing Chris Jenner, and she did not let Chris Jenner get away with the, the standard softball questions. And I thought that was really awesome. And I would love to see Wendy Williams. Um, I don't know if anyone else remembers this, but... Way back when Own first started, they hired Rosie O'Donnell to do um, a talk show. And it started out kind of just like her old talk show, but it didn't do very well. So then they rebooted the show to where Rosie, and this is where Rosie really, really shined. And I think this is where Wendy Williams would really shine. Where it was one-on-one, the full-hour interviews. Uh, and, And one of the most memorable moments from that was when... Rosie asked Chelsea Handler about her abortion. And it was just such an iconic moment that I really wish that someone would give Rosie that kind of setting. And maybe not um, five days a week. But if a network, um, news or just regular network or streaming platform would give Rosie O'Donnell a chance, she would have the very first successful streaming talk show. I, I promise you, because... She is so good at that. Um, and, and I think Wendy Williams would really benefit from that kind of format, too. Um, but so she announced that she's coming back to, to the Wendy Williams show on, on March 14th, which will be just over, maybe just about three months since she's last appeared. Uh, now... People keep making a big deal about this, but if you consider that in the 10 years that Wendy has hosted the show, and this is the most time that she's ever missed, it's really, really remarkable. Most talk shows go on a hiatus in the month of August. Wendy Williams keeps going. She's live basically all year long with just a few breaks in between. So I think we got to hand it to her. Like She has been a machine in... Her body was probably telling her that she needed the break. Unless you read C-Dan where um, they have her on drugs and whatnot. Maybe she is. Maybe she did fall off the wagon. Her her husband's alleged affairs, getting a mistress pregnant in their house. That would that would cause anyone to, to have a meltdown. I know I would. Um, but more than that... I think that there is a certain, um, I, I think once we push our bodies too hard, we just, they, they start to shut down. And, and, you know, maybe taking drugs was her way of letting her body shut down. Um, there, I forgot now, because the blind's a little bit old, but either Crazy Days and Nights or Blind Gossip, and I'm, I'm going to say Crazy Days and Nights, because the way I'm remembering the wording was very anti-lawyer-esque. Um, said that within the next month, Wendy is going to announce 
um, the divorce, a divorce from her husband, which would be mind-blowingly epic, um, because she's been married to him, he's an executive, executive producer on her show, and her manager, so that would mean, like, either we're getting ready for a, a big Wendy Williams showdown, or this is already in the process of happening, and the time that she took off was more or less her way of, um, untying herself from this dude, um, even today, Auntie Lawyer had an item up that said that her statement today, which I'll read to you in one second, sounded more like her than her husband, which was just amazing. Um, here's, here's what she said, um, salute to... Debmar Mercury for believing from the start, and thanks to my staff for tire- tirelessly holding it down for me. Uh, and she also co-signed what um, the production company Deb Debmar Mercury said. Um, Wendy Williams is an incredible talent with the most unique voice in daytime. We can't wait to welcome her back to her show. We can't wait to welcome her back to her iconic purple chair on the set of her show. We so appreciate all of the guest hosts and panelists who filled in for Wendy during this time. These people are and always will be true family to the show, and we want to thank all of our loyal and supportive fans who have been with us for 10 years now. And I I think that's the whole thing, like, Wendy Williams has been going for 10 years. Uh, After Ellen leaves, if it's in 2020 or... Whenever, if Wendy Williams is still going, she will be the new queen of daytime. Um, because she has the longevity, her fans love her, and frankly, I think it's time someone like her takes that mantle. We had Oprah, who was very um, soft and touchy-feely, and um, Ellen, who's the dancing lesbian and funny... And I think what we need now is someone who who does take on the gossip, gives her honest take. You know, she can do the softball interview, but she can also do a hardcore interview, which is really awesome. So welcome back, Wendy. We're, we're very happy you're coming back. And speaking of coming back, I'll be doing that in just one second. And I'm back. So, um... We're going to talk some Miley Cyrus, because I love the girl. I really do love Miley. Um, When she released Malibu a couple years ago, I just fell in love with the song. I thought it... Like, I love bangers. I, you know, that is an awesome, awesome CD. Um, Me and Mary T will walk around Manhattan singing Wrecking Ball. But... Sometimes I think she goes a little too far with things. Like, I think in the Bangers era, especially um, with the We Can't Stop um, promotion, I think maybe she went a a, a bit too far um, over the edge. And then with Malibu, I think she kind of went too far the other way, where she was, like, trying to be straight-laced and, you know, the good girl that Liam Hemsworth would love and hold and whatever. And there's nothing wrong with that. But then now, 
it's like she's trying to strike this balance between Banger's era and and um, the Malibu era. And it's just flipping weird. Um, so, a few years ago, she did come out as pansexual. And then early, early uh, in December of last year, 2018, she uh, married Liam Hemsworth. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. Bi and pan people can marry people of the opposite sex. That's, you know, that doesn't change your sexuality at all. But the the way Miley talks about it, let's let's just hear this. Um, the person interviewing her for Vanity Fair asked her why um, she decided to get married, and she said the reason that people get married sometimes can be old fashioned, but I think the reason we got married isn't old fashioned. I actually think it's kind of new age. We're re- re- we're redefining to be fucking frank what it looks like. For someone that's a queer person like myself to be in a hetero relationship. A big part of my pride in my identity is being a queer person. Okay, um, don't know what you mean here. But luckily, Miley decided to go on. And she said, when I pr- what I preach is people fall in love with people, not gender, not looks, and not whatever. What I'm in love with exists on an almost spiritual level. It has nothing to do with sexuality. Relationships and partnerships in a new, ge- new generation, I don't think they have so much to do with sexuality or gender. Sex is actually a small part, and gender is a very small part, almost irrelevant part of relationships. Um, no. I Here's where I, I differentiate. As a gay man... I love dick. I know it's going to come as a shock to you guys. And poor Will is probably pulling out his hair as he listens to me record. (laughs) But here's the truth, okay? I can love you. We can be friends. But ultimately, I, I... For me, at least, I need the penis. Um... You know, and I do agree with her, like, sometimes you do, things just happen. Almost every one of my relationships has has started with us being friends, and things just kind of progressing towards something new. Um, and, and that's just my story, that's just how things work. Um, I, I've dated a lot of straight guys, quote-unquote straight guys, um, you know, I had a fuck buddy that I was with for many, many, many years. And, you know, we cuddled. We we basically were dating just without the title. And and that worked out for me. Um, and it worked out for him. And then when I moved to New York, it was kind of like, okay. That that's that's done now. Uh, and you know when I when I moved back to Michigan for a short time, we we started hooking up again. We started doing all that sort of stuff. Uh, but ultimately, we ended we ended the relationship because I wanted something more. Um, and and so did he, but he, I don't think he realized it at the time. When I moved back to New York, he ended up moving to Pennsylvania. 
And, in fact, he's probably listening right now. You know who you are. Hello. I'm talking about you. You're famous. Um, anyways, and he has a boyfriend now. They're together, and it's very, very adorable. Uh, and I have... It's complicated. <laughs> That's where I'm going to leave that. So I, I do think Miley has a good point. I just don't think she's right in terms for me. But that's okay. Like, And I really respect what she's trying to say here. You know, uh, because people do try to decide what people's sexuality is based on who they're dating. A bi person can date a person of the opposite sex and not be straight. They can date someone of the same sex and not be gay. They just happen to choose a person, or yeah, they just happen to have chosen a person that they hit it off with and that they're attracted to. It doesn't mean that suddenly, oh my god, you're dating a dude, you are now gay. That's not how that works. Unless you're a gay dude. Or, you know, I, that was just an example. Obviously, you can be a gay woman too. They're called lesbians. <laughs> All right, I'm going to go before I get yelled at for not using production notes and spouting off this nonsense. I'm going to go and I'll be right back. And I'm back. So, I wanted to talk tonight, for tonight's true crime story, I want to talk about um, the Oakland County child killer, a.k.a. the babysitter killer. All right, so this one, you guys have to know, um, is very close, it's very close to my, um, heart and my home, because the areas I'm about to talk about are areas I know very intimately. This is where I lived, um, for a very long time. So, you know, this is not necessarily something that we talk about there, but as a Michigan boy, I do, I do need to tell you that the, um, this case is is probably one of the ones that hit closest to uh, to me because again, it, it's where I lived and um, <clears throat> yeah. So the very first case, um, or at least the first one that was reported and known. Uh, the victim's name was Mark Stebbins. He was 12 years old, and he was leaving the American Legion in Ferndale, Michigan. Ferndale happens to be the um, city I lived in um, before I moved to New York. So he left, and he told his mom that he was going to go home. He was tired, whatever. So he left the Legion and started heading home. And then no one heard from him. And they got scared. And, you know, when the mom got home, she noticed that he wasn't there and was like, what's going on? So she ended up calling the police and he went out looking for him. His body was found February 19th, um, 1976, on a snowbank, neatly laid out. Um, And if if you're from the area, then you'll know where I'm talking about. It was in... At Ten Mile in Greenfield, 
Um, now, there's a little bit of controversy about whether that was in Southfield or Oak Park because they're so close together that you really don't know. Um, but that's not important here. What's important is he had been murdered, neatly laid out, and he had been raped. Um, now, there's some speculation that it, was, it wasn't it was an actual rape, that he was... Um, that whoever did this used some sort of apparatus. Um, other people, including um, some of the police, um, police people, policemen, who were at the scene and who have talked about the case, know about the case, said no, this was an actual rape. Like, it was, um, I don't want to get too graphic because it is a 12-year-old, or was a 12-year-old, um, but they, they did make mention that this was not, like, a bottle or something. Um, and then the next one, she was again 12, her name was Jill Robinson, and she was running away from home just before Christmas in 1976. Uh, after she disappeared, um, this was in Red Oak. I, I used to go to school in Red Oak, and I um, lived there for for some brief for some brief time, for a brief time. Um, and there's a hobby store on Main Street. If you don't know what Main Street is, um, basically, it, <laughs> this is going to sound really sarcastic, but it's Main Street of Red Oak. Um, Everything's on there. All like, all the restaurants. Um, the I don't think there are any clubs on that. Maybe there are. Um, the the community colleges there, whatever. And they found that she was killed by a single shot from a twelve gauge gun. Twelve twelve gauge shotgun. And again, her body was laid out where it was easily found. So this guy wanted these bodies found. We don't know why. The next one was um, Christine Milik of Berkeley. She was last seen just after New Year's Day, January 2nd, 1977. She had gone to the 7-Eleven. I don't think it's there anymore. Um, on 12 Mile at Oakshire in Berkeley. Um, this one took a little bit longer to find. She wasn't found until January 21st, 1977. But again, fully clothed and plain sight. It's really interesting that he put these kids out in plain sight. And... Um, and, and I just double-checked. Mark Ste- Stebbins was also fully dressed. So whatever he's doing to these kids, raping them or whatever, he's he's doing it and then making sure that they're fully dressed before he lays their bodies out to be found. Um, Timothy King uh, was 11. Again, it was March 16th, 1977. He went to the store to get some candy. And never came home. He was found by a Kentucky Fried Chicken. It's not saying where exactly 
Oh, Eight Mile in Livernois in Wayne County. So, th- so this time he's way out there. Um, and like Mark, he was suffocated. So the two girls were shot, the two boys were suffocated. Which tells me that um, whoever, whoever the Oakland County serial killer is, um, he was raping the boys and just killing the girls for fun, I, don't, I guess. Um, there were a ton of suspects... Um, there was um uh, there were a ton of suspects one person calling himself Alan who said yes I did this um Archibald Sloan was a pedophile who was actually known to rape little boys um but the hair samples didn't match and then there's Chris Bush. Um, he was the son of a General Motors executive. Uh, and, and there were um, shells from the bullets found in his room. Um, and a picture that really resembled Mark Stebbins. But they were never able to make make anything stick. This case is unsolved. Which is really a tragedy because the, these parents deserve to have, you know... I mean, the parents are uh, have probably are of an age now where either they've already died or they're dying, but... The families deserve to know what happened to their relative. Um, if the parents are still alive, they they deserve justice. Uh, I'm gonna eventually write about this. Maybe even do a book. I'm sure uh, my best friend would love that because if I do a book, that would mean I'd have to spend more time in Michigan, and he's he's really all about that. <laughs> but. Um, that's just, that's just a drop in the bucket. Um, the Oakland County, um, child killer, aka the babysitter killer. If you have any information, please reach out to, um, Ferndale Royal Oak Police. Um, if, if they're not the ones handling the case anymore, they will lead you in the right direction, um, to the authorities that are handling the case. And I'm going to go, and I will be right back. And we're back. So as promised at the beginning of the episode, I am here with Will, who is always torturing me because I never use production notes. Hi, everyone. I'm Will, Ed's producer. You, This is the first time I've been on this podcast. You haven't heard me on it before because Ed records the usually records these at 1 o'clock in the morning. When I'm asleep and unable to harass him about all the things I tell him to do that he doesn't do, like have production notes or rehearse or use a program that allows me to cut out all the stumbles he makes. 
it's not always at one o'clock in the morning. Sometimes it's at ten at night, and you're still asleep. Sometimes it's at two o'clock in the morning. <laughs> only when I'm really drunk. Yes. Yes. Only when you're really drunk, which is. Let's move on. <laughs> so, I, I just need you guys to hear this. Because I have not prepared at all, as you know. Because I never do. So, basically, it's business as usual. <laughs> and he comes in with a ton of production notes. So he knows exactly what he's going to say. Like, he's better than me because I never know what I'm going to say. Well... I mean, if you know what you're going to say before you come into these things, you can minimize the amount of vocal nonsense that you put that makes it into the final podcast. For the record, tonight we're going to be talking about the curious case of Jussie Smollett, which has been on everybody's minds and in everybody's news feeds recently. And if he hasn't, then you're very lucky because my Facebook is full of Jussie memes right now. Well, to be fair... He has, you know, done a lot to inspire them. True. Anyway, here are the facts of the case. Last month, in January of 2019, Jesse Smollett began claiming that his life was under threat after he supposedly received a homophobic, threatening letter. Then, on January 29th, the actor turned himself into a police station claiming that he had been attacked and beaten by two, by two men in a homophobic and racist assault. He claimed at the time that he had contacted his music producer afterwards and that the producer would be able to corroborate his story. But notably, he did not allow the police access to his phone records. That's not true. He eventually did it. They were just heavily, heavily eradicated because he claimed that he had pictures of his partner and other high-profile celebrity numbers on there that he didn't want to get out to the public. Which, to be entirely fair to him, may have been true, but was almost certainly not the reason why he redacted this information, as police would later come to find out. Anyway, the police went on an investi- began an investigation, which they have been conducting for the past two weeks, with relatively few leads. However, they had a breakthrough at the beginning of this week when they picked up Two brothers, aged 27 and 29, who, tra- return- who were spotted by a security camera near the site of the attack on the date of the attack before they left for Nigeria. They were arrested at O'Hare Airport. Their names have not been released because they haven't been charged with anything. They were questioned for 48 hours and then released uh, late last week. I'm sure you can all tell where this is going, even if you didn't already know, but... Shortly after their release, the police released a statement saying that the shift of their investigation had changed drastically and that it was now focused on an entirely different track. Rumors began to swirl that Jussie Smollett was now a suspect in the attack and had orchestrated it. Rumors that were confirmed shortly before that we recorded this podcast on Thursday morning. And Thursday night, Jesse actually was formally charged by prosecutors, as we talked about last night, or in the last episode. Maybe I do need production notes sometimes. Yes, that's, <laughs> that's what I've been saying. Oh, um, Jesse was formally charged by prosecutors um, last night with a um, 
felony public disorderly conduct, basically saying that he filed a, a false police report. The Chicago Police Department was not very happy with his behavior. Superintendent Eddie Johnson, who released the police statement earlier this morning, said that he wished the families of the victims of gun violence in Chicago got as much attention in this as this case had, and that it made the detectives on the case pretty upset to learn that Jesse was had made a false report, and in fact had paid these two men to stage an attack on his person. And an attack that involved them putting his head in a noose in front of what they believed to be an active security camera. I mean, to be fair, it was active, just not on the right side. Yeah. Apparently, the reason why he did, why Jesse Smollett orchestrated this attack, is that he was unhappy with the salary he was being paid on Empire and wanted to negotiate for a better one. $65,000 per episode. I did the math. Yeah. It's $1.1 million for less than six months of work. Yeah. I mean, personally, I'd have just asked for a raise. But then again, I am clearly not a criminal <laughs> mastermind of his caliber. So I can, and I can only guess at what goes on inside the head of such an individual. For the record, you're not getting a raise. Yeah. I, I knew that already. <laughs> He's been after me to actually pay him and give him a living wage. What am I, made of living wages? Well, you are hiring me to provide suggestions and cut video for the vlogs that you're planning. That's true. But still, I, I'm not Jesse Small. I don't make $1.1 million yeah. in six months. I don't, yeah, un would that we could all make $1.1 million for being unfunny on an NBC sitcom for half a year. Empire is a Fox drama. Oh, shit. <laughs> I guess that tells you um, how much cultural impact Empire's had. This is why he's the producer and not the host. Also, a, a very good reason why I don't need production notes. Now, see, if, I'd, if I had um, checked my production notes before I recorded that segment, the notes that I made about his background, I would have been able to correct that mistake. Unfortunately, I only checked the notes about the facts of the case. That's why I'm here. Because I'm good at my job sometimes. Occasionally. When you're not drunk. If you didn't leave me to drink, I wouldn't be drunk. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> Ed Anderson is incapable of exercising self-control. I'm pretty sure they learned that already. Yeah, actually, yeah, you learned it probably on one of the 500 previous episodes of this podcast first. There's not been 500 yet, only like 100 and some odd. Pardon me, I'm practicing hyperbole. Surely, I figured that you, of all people, would understand hyperbole. I never exaggerate anything, except for my innocence. Like I said, <laughs> I figured that you, of all people, would understand hyperbole. Unlike Jesse, I am innocent. I've never faked my own attack. Yet. I will concede <laughs> to the second point. Why just a second? Because we all know that you are not innocent. Do you hear this? This is what I put up with day after day. Between that and... You need to be using production notes so you don't say, um... 
I have not said um once, and I have not used any production notes. I mean, for the record, I say you should use production notes so that you get all the information you say right. Which, admittedly, I didn't just provide the best argument for, but that's not why I say production notes. <laughs> that's what he says. And then after this, I'm going to be yelled at for talking about production notes on the podcast again. No, you do that all the time. I could, that's, I'm pretty sure that's part of your brand now. I'm pretty sure you've been complaining about me since before you hired me, actually. That's not true. I have not. It was only after I hired you that I started complaining about you. Anyway, <laughs> final thoughts on the subject that we were in theory supposed to be talking about? I, I, and I said this last night, I'm going to say it again tonight. I keep hoping for an Empire-esque twist where he's actually working with the cops to nail the motherfuckers who actually attacked him. Yeah, I think the Empire-esque twist here is that he paid the dudes who attacked him in order to get a raise. Which, you know, seems to have backfired on him since can't get paid in jail. Assuming he goes to jail, he could still get a plea deal, too. He could. I don't think he will, but... Yeah, probably not. All right, that's going to do it for us tonight. Thank you so much for listening, as always. If you need to get a hold of me, um, tweet me at authoredA. Facebook, Patreon, Instagram, at Author Ed Anderson. And until next time, I'm raising my glass and saying cheers.